Uh, maybe you guys have heard of this saying that laughter is considered the universal language. And so if we believe that, if laughter is considered the universal language, then I would say that loss must be considered the universal experience for us. And so I want to define loss, and this is how I'm defining it. And again, this is not my definition, but this is something I found that I felt really, really, uh, you know, kind of encompassed the meaning of what we're thinking about when we talk about loss. And this is what I came up with, which is a state or feeling of grief when deprived of someone or something of value. So let me repeat that, a state, of, a state or feeling of grief when deprived of someone or something of value. And this is what we know when we talk about loss. It's that it confounds us. Loss just absolutely confounds us, and I believe that it confounds two things that are inherent in us. Number one, it confounds our expectations, and number two, it confounds our entitlements. Well, what do I mean by expectations? Well, I'm defining expectations as what we thought would be. Our expectations. David wrote in Psalm 30, verses 6 through 7, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Right? So David is a king that God uh, gave a lot of prosperity and success to as a king. And then he says this, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. So what he's doing is he's acknowledging that God had brought him into this particular place, this particular position of prosperity. But then he just turns and he says this right after that. He says, you hid your face and I was dismayed. And so what we get from that psalm is that David is acknowledging that he is in the place he is in because God put him in that place to prosper. But the minute that he felt God's favor removed from him or didn't feel God's presence anymore, what that points us to is that his expectations were in some ways dashed, right? He experienced some sense of loss. So loss confounds our expectations. It also confounds our entitlements. What do I mean by entitlements? Well, I'm defining it like this. What we believe we deserve. What we believe that we deserve based on our expectations. Uh, Professor at Southern Seminary, a guy named Jeremy Pierre, made this comment. He said, we experience disappointment as a sense of loss when reality fails to meet our expectations. So one of my earliest experiences with loss, I remember, I was thinking back at what were some of the, what were some of the early confrontations that I had that I can remember when I faced loss. I, the first one I remember was when I was, I think, about seven or eight years old, and I, I had a best friend at seven or eight. His name was Eric White. Eric, if you're listening, man, I would love to reconnect with you um, if you're listening to this sermon by chance. But um, he was just one of those friends. And I know I was young, and um, I only knew what I could know at that place and point in my life about what it meant to have a friend, but we were friends, and we loved each other, and we spent every minute together that we were allowed to spend together. And then at some point, we moved and uh, my parents picked up and they moved us out to this, uh, this rural community called the Canyon out in Southern California. And I, and I lost Eric. And because, you know, you're seven years old and you're eight years old and you move 45 minutes away, it's over, right? I mean, there's no, you know, we're not, we're not hopping on the bicycles and meeting halfway. You know, we don't have the benefit of doing any of those things. So I, I lost Eric. And I remember feeling a profound sense of sadness and loss because I knew, even in my seven-year-oldness, that... I was probably really never going to see him again. I was unfortunately a very realistic kid. And then not long, not long after, about seven years after we had lived in the canyon, uh, my dad had fallen on some really hard times financially, and we had to move from the canyon. 
and we moved about an hour east and to a place where we didn't know anybody. I had no friends, and I remember driving away um, just feeling a profound sense of loss. The memories that we had built up between you know, the ages of 7 and 14, still to this day, some of my best memories when I look back, I still, if I think about it and I let myself dwell on it, I still feel a sense of loss. It all comes uh, washing back onto me. The surprising thing about loss, when we consider what it is and we consider our place in it as believers, is that the Bible speaks to it. And the Bible not only speaks to it, but it's kind of a page-turner, actually, of loss and disappointment. And strangely, no one is excluded. From Genesis to Revelation, nobody is excluded from loss, including Jesus Christ. Including Jesus Christ. So, we're going to ask three questions this morning. I already talked about them in our call to worship, but here's what they are. We're going to talk about, number one, why do we, soft, why do we suffer loss? And secondly, what do we learn through our loss? What can we learn through our loss? And then thirdly, how does the cross, how does the cross of Jesus provide meaning for our loss? So the first question that we want to discuss is why do we suffer loss? And what we see in Genesis is that Genesis tells us four things really about the origins of our loss, where loss came from, how it, how it became a thing for us. And number one, we find in Genesis that we are fallen men and women. So Genesis introduces us to the creation of the world. It also introduces us to uh, mankind's first experience with sin and brokenness. So we are fallen men and women. Number two, we fell because we failed to trust God. That's why we fell. Number three, a failure to trust God is sin. That's how Genesis would define sin. And then four, the consequences of sin are loss and disappointment. So this, these are the four things, amongst other things, that Genesis tells us about the origins of our loss. So even when we dive into the story of Adam and Eve, we see something, we see an ideal that was in place that's not in place anymore for us, right? We see that in the beginning, there was no loss. We see that in the beginning, God created all things, and all things were declared good by God. Nothing was running at a deficit, in that particular moment. Everything was, was, so to speak, in the black, right? It was all gain. Nothing was missing. We weren't losing anything. And then Genesis 3, chapter 1 comes along, and Satan comes into the picture. And you know what he does? He casts doubt on the goodness of God, on the provision of God. And then we get to Genesis 3, chapter 6, and we see what happens when Ab and Eve give into the temptation that came from Satan. The first thing they experience God upon disobedience is what? Is loss. That's the first thing that they experience. Well, what was, what was lost? Well, if you look down on verse 7, one of the first things that was lost was innocence and intimacy. Shame came into the picture. They realized they were naked. It says they knew they were naked. And they actually had to clothe themselves. So there was a very specific kind of innocence and intimacy that was lost for them in the moment that they sinned. Verses 8 through 10, they lost a particular and perfect relationship with God. Because it says that they became fearful from their shame and their nakedness. And what did they do? Well, they hid from God. And what that keys us in on is that there was a loss of relationship 
in that moment. We get into verses 12 and 13, and we see that it wasn't only a relationship with God that was getting lost. It was also a relationship with each other, right? So this way that God had formed Eve out of the rib of Adam and brought them together in this union to flourish together as husband and wife, we see that all of a sudden now with sin, there were cracks in that. What does Adam say? When God comes and confronts them on their sin, he says, the woman you gave me, right? So that particular and perfect relationship they have had been cracked. He said, the woman you gave me. And all the selfless care that he had shown Eve and that Eve had shown him was diminishing and deteriorating. Now there was selfishness. Now there was a looking after my own rather than for the needs of the other. There's selfishness. There was a lack of love. There was a lack of care. Then we get into verse 16 and 17 and we see God proclaim what the curse of sin will bring about in their life because now they are broken people living in a broken world. And we see that Eve is going to experience physical discomfort, right? Whereas before she had physical comfort, now through childbirth there was going to be physical discomfort. We realize that where before there was relational ease, now was going to be the introduction of what we probably would in modern terms call the battle of the sexes, right? There's going to be disunity between men and women. Then we see Adam we see God talking to Adam about what now was going to be changed about his vocation, which used to be ideal. But now his work would be hard labor. Now his work would be toil because Adam's sin had caused the earth to begin to decay. So before when the earth was having agreement with everything that mankind was engaging it with, especially considering that you know this was an agrarian society and people were working in the soil, it was going to now be a place of hard toil and labor. And then we get to verse 19, and God says, the other thing that you are going to lose is your life. He says, to dust you shall return. And so we see that this thing culminates and actually a life now that would end in physical death. And then we go to verse 23, and it says, the Lord drove them out. So we not only see a, a loss of life, but we also see a loss of, of home. They were driven out from the place that God had originally created and intended for them. And then verse 24 talks about the cherubim um, guarding the entrance to the garden, which for them and throughout the course of their life would have been a reminder of paradise loss. It would have been a loss of a dream that in their lifetime they would never return to. So we look at Adam and Eve and we see the origins of loss. We see the origins of brokenness. We're given a reason for why we experience what we experience. And what we see then is that loss becomes a major theme after that throughout the course of Scripture for all of Adam and Eve's descendants, right? We see their son Abel shortly after, who loses his life when he's murdered by his brother Cain, who is jealous of him now. Then we move to Jacob, who is the father of the Israelites. He loses his son Joseph because his brothers were envious. Why? Because they had lost the affection of their father, who had improperly placed the majority of it on one son and ignored the rest of his sons. And then we see Joseph then who pays for the envy of his brothers when they sell him into slavery. And what does he lose? He loses his home. And not only loses his home, but he loses 13 years 
of his life between the ages of 17 and 30 in, in slavery. And then you move on years and years and you see the Israelites, the children of Jacob, being sold into slavery under Egyptian rule, lost the freedom that they once enjoyed, which leads us to Moses, who God calls to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And this journey that lasts for years and years and years ends with Moses on top of a mountain being denied entrance into the promised land because of his sin. So something that he had led the Israelites to all those years, he lost in the end. And then we move on to Ruth. If you guys were with us at Christmas time, we preach through the book of Ruth for Advent. Ruth loses her husband. She loses her homeland. She's forced to come into a foreign environment and face all of the trauma and the troubles that came with that. We see somebody like Esther who became queen to a pagan king. And again, we're actually going to go through the book of Esther next year. And what we're going to see is that it's not all what it seems. This was a woman who had lost all of her freedom, who lost all of her dignity, who actually became queen, but was actually, at the end of the day, treated how we would feel a slave was treated. And then we get all the way to the book of Job, who we would almost consider the king of biblical loss. Right? Nobody has suffered the way Job has suffered. Right? And we look at Job, who in a day loses his family, his fortune, and his health. Now let's dive to the New Testament. We see the Apostle Paul, this man who had been a Pharisee, who had been trained, who had had a position of authority and honor, and he loses that position because of Christ. He loses his authority. He loses his reputation. He loses his friends. Now we speed through a list like this so that my sermon isn't an hour and you don't experience the loss of your afternoon, okay? But we speed through a list like that, but what this tells us very briefly, and there's many more examples, is that God's people suffer loss. We suffer loss. It's a reality. And given this, the surprising thing is that loss surprises us. We read these accounts and yet we come face to face with loss and we're surprised by it. Part of the reason is that believers can tend to function, even though they would never say they do, but they can tend to function under, under karma, right? Believing that, hey, you know, I haven't done anything bad enough to deserve this. Why is this happening to me? So sometimes when we face loss and we face the confusion in our loss, it's actually because we're not looking at it in a biblical, through a biblical lens, but we've actually kind of adopted how the world looks at loss. We forget that in a broken world, things break. Things break in a broken world, or maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe it's not this karma thing. Uh, you might think that God is getting back at you because maybe you sinned, and now he's angry with you. So now you're suffering under some of these losses because God is mean-spirited and he's just throwing things at you, getting back at you for your sin. Well, what's interesting is that the Bible answers and addresses these questions and concerns, right? Because when we go back to Job, you know what it tells us? What it tells us about Job at the beginning of the book is that he was a blameless and he was an upright man who feared God and turned away evil, is what it says. Turned away from evil. And yet his faith was tested through unbelievable loss 
in affliction. But God affirms him as an upright and a blameless man. If you go to John chapter 3, we're told about a blind man who comes into the presence of the disciples and Jesus, and the disciples want to know something, so they ask Jesus this question. They said, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus answers, he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So even with this, when we look at the blind man, when we look at Job, we're starting to get a, a, a different kind of feel and a different kind of picture of what God is doing in and with our loss. And we actually need to look no further than Jesus if this is our concern. Because he was the only perfect, only sinless man who ever walked the earth. And who suffered more loss than Jesus? Loss of home, loss of family, loss of friends. Loss of disciples, loss of reputation, loss of dignity, loss of justice, and eventually loss of life. We are all affected by some form of loss because things break in a world broken by sin. So that's some of the loss that we see as we open the narrative of scripture and literally from Genesis to Revelation, we see a pattern of loss. So what about us? What are some of the ways that you can attest to, that you have faced and confronted loss, whether it was in the past and it's still affecting you today, or you're in, you're in the current sort of mess and the despair of loss. Maybe for some of you it's just you've, you've dreamt of having a spouse for years and nobody's come along up to this point. And you feel the loss of that. You feel the years having passed you by that have been lost when your expectation was that you were going to have a partner. For some of you, it's that you have just wanted to become a parent for years and years. And for whatever reason, you haven't been able to. And those years now, when you look back at them, they feel like they've been lost. You feel uh, broken by the discouragement and the expectations that have been dashed for good things that you desired. Maybe for some of you it's a job or a career. You went to school because you have a passion for a particular thing and for some reason God hasn't opened any doors in that particular vocation. And you feel like, man, I lo I've lost these opportunities to do the things I thought I was going to do. And it leaves you confused. It leaves you questioning God. For some of you, it's maybe a relationship with a parent. Maybe there was a fracture or some brokenness at one point. It's never gotten better. And it's been years and years, and you feel the lack of that. You feel the loss of that. For some, it might be your health. For some, maybe you had a sudden health crisis. You didn't see it coming. You're a relatively healthy person. We have somebody in our Ashland congregation battling with that now. Healthy his whole life. Soccer coach. Cancer. He feels the loss because it's real. For some of you, you took marriage vows. And those vows were broken. And you feel the loss of that brokenness. You feel the loss of your expectation that you had somebody you could trust. And it turned out to not be true. Some of us have kids who have gone off the rails. And that relationship that you once had, what you remember about the person they used to be, and the years that have passed and things have remained broken, it feels like loss. 
Some of you have marriages now that you look at and you feel that they've robbed you of the joy that you had once hoped and dreamed for and expected. For some of you, it's finances. Those medical challenges have arisen in your life and they've created loss for you. They've put you in a particular place that you were not expecting. For some, you've had a, a spouse that has died unexpectedly. It's left you scrambling financially. For some, it's friends who you once had. Maybe they lost interest in you. You're confused. You don't have a reason. You don't have an answer for that. Or maybe they betrayed you or they turned against you. You've experienced loss. All of us have been affected by some form of these losses that I've laid out, right? And then there's natural. There's natural transitions of loss. Loss happens because of natural. Our kids go to college. They get married. They move away. It's good things, but it's loss. Our grandparents, our parents, they grow old. They get sick. They pass. It's expected, but it's a loss. Or we have spouses that pass away unexpectedly. It's a loss. Some of us are facing retirement. or We've gone through retirement and we feel like we've lost our identity. We don't know what to do. We don't know who we are. It's a loss. Sometimes our job transfers us to another town. Maybe it transfers us to another department. We have to relocate. Everything that we've built geographically in an area with culture and friends, we lose it. Maybe the church we loved gets a new pastor. Everything's different now. Everything feels different now. It's a loss. We all experience loss. We're all affected by loss because we live in a broken world where things break. So, what can we learn? What would scripture have us learn through our loss? Well, let's turn to the book of Philippians, and I think we learned some things from the Apostle Paul about loss through the book of Philippians from a man who was very near to loss, who experienced it very acutely in his life. So I have four things that I believe we can learn and should learn and should strive to learn as a church body that helps one another learn these things through loss. The first one is this. What can we learn? Number one, we can learn to wait in hope. To wait in hope. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul is telling the church, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the part I'm going to focus on. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, to wait in hope means our expectations that we talked about in the beginning, they become realigned with the character of God who works. Working meaning he's not idle. He's not just kicking it back old school like he's at work. And wills, and by wills we mean his good intentions for us, for the good pleasure of bringing about our good for his glory. Okay? So we talk about God's good pleasure even in our loss. 
What does that mean? What do we mean when we say God's good pleasure? Well, God's good pleasure and his ultimate pleasure was to make Christ suffer so that we might reclaim Christ as our greatest hope. That's the big idea in that book that we open every, every week. Okay? We, in Ashland this morning, we sang a song called Sweet Comfort. And the opening line, the line that gets repeated is, Whatever my God ordains is right. Are you kidding me? Whatever my God ordains is right? How is that possible? How is it possible to believe that and then to live that out? How is that possible? When everything around us is telling us something different. How is that possible? Well, our answer here from Paul and Philippians is that God has a purpose behind these things that don't just happen to us on accident. And then he calls us to wait in hope. So as we suffer loss, this is what's happening. We are savoring Christ more deeply, more satisfyingly, more devoutedly, devotedly. I don't know what it's, how it's pronounced. Because 1 Thessalonians reminds us of this truth. We do not grieve as others who what? Have no hope. Because we will someday meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. There's nothing unhopeful about that statement. We can wait in hope because Romans 8 tells us we know some things. Romans 8.28, it reminds us that you know something, and that I know something. And it's a truth that we know. And it's this truth, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. All things. So that means those little, tiny, minute losses that you experience that you wonder, does God even know this is happening to me? It means, yes, those are included in the all things comment. All things work together for good for those who are called according to what? His purpose. Because whatever our God ordains is right even when we can't see it even when we're ruined and we're slayed and things are taken from us you guys hearing me so waiting in hope means cultivating a heart of trust in the character of God who will faithfully and perfectly accomplish in you all that is in his heart Charles Spurgeon said this God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So one of the things that we learn through loss is to wait in hope. Now, that doesn't mean binge waiting in hope. That doesn't mean inactivity. This brings us to our second point. We learn to wait in hope, and secondly, we learn to pursue Christ while waiting in hope. Philippians 3, verse 12 says this. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but this is what he says. He goes, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made up my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. 
And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, it's okay. That's what he's saying. God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So we press on toward the goal for the prize, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We press on. We don't just wait. We don't just get paralyzed. But we press on to hold true to that which we have attained in Christ Jesus. Now loss can do two things for us. It can humble us or it can harden us. But in our waiting, according to Paul, we are called to war against that hardening by pressing on in our pursuit of God, by pouring out our grief to him in prayer, by eating and digesting his word, by devoting ourselves to fellowship with other saints for encouragement. All the things that is happening this morning, here, that's what we're called to do to press on. Because these are reminders of the hope that we don't see, but we are waiting for with developed patience. Because the easiest thing for us to do in our loss is to retreat into our own pain. And that's actually our tendency. And that's what many of us want to do. So we learn to wait in hope. We learn to pursue Christ while waiting in hope. Uh, Melissa and I, we heard the story of a woman and her husband who suffered through years of infertility. Um, and then after years of infertility, they, they then suffered through a series of, of miscarriages. One of the ways that she pursued Christ while waiting in hope and probably many hopeless days and nights was she organized all of the baby showers for the women in her church. She celebrated life while experiencing none of it in her own body. Now, eventually, uh, they fostered to adopt. So God answered her prayers while she waited, pursued, and pressed. But not like she thought. Not like she thought. We wait in hope. We pursue Christ while we wait in hope. So that number three... We become something while pursuing Christ. Philippians 3 verse 7 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything, Paul? He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings. And here's the part I'm going to focus on. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says that I may know Christ, gain Christ, become like Christ. So this was how the loss that Paul experienced was forming him, right? Because loss is forming you. It is forming you. For the unbeliever, for the person who doesn't know Christ, loss will strip a person of their identity. But for the believer, loss will shape a person's identity as they wait in hope 
And as they pursue Christ and press on, they become something. Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And Paul says, hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the very character that becomes formed in us through loss as we pursue Christ is also what produces the hope in us that we wait for. Does that make sense? So preachers have used the imagery of butterflies for years and years. I think I've heard nine, 925 messages from preachers using butterflies as illustration. I counted this morning. That's how many I've, I've heard. Um, it's actually a great illustration, the metamorphosis of the butterfly. Um, but here's what I think is interesting about all of that. And I, and I was walking this week, and I came on this field, and all these butterflies are just literally going crazy. And I was you know, almost scared for a minute, but I realized they were butterflies, so everything was good. But here's what I found interesting as I was meditating on this, and I was looking at butterflies. That's what your pastor does. He stands there. He stares at butterflies for hours with a piece of paper in his hand and a pencil, and he prays and he writes things. I do more than that, but that's part of what I do. But here's what I thought was interesting, is that God didn't just create butterflies. Isn't that weird? That butterfly is not what he created. That butterfly was not birthed a butterfly. What God did was he created something else. He created a caterpillar that would become a butterfly. So his, his delight, God's delight, God's goodwill, God's pleasure was to make something that wasn't quite what it was going to be when he made it. You're like, that's the same illustration I've heard every time that I've ever heard this illustration, Ronnie. Not, I'm not saying it's groundbreaking. I'm just saying, think about that. God created something that was not what it was. He does that with us. He creates us to become something because why? Because we are born in brokenness. That's why. So we become something while we pursue Christ. And then finally, we learn to bear each other's burdens in our becoming. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he says. It's not God's intention, even in our loss, that we collapse on ourselves in our loss, Right? Our burdens are what help us carry another's burden. I sat down with a brother this week, uh, and we had a shared experience of loss, it turns out. He was explaining something to him, and it was something that had happened to me in, in my life. And he told me, he said, it helps me to talk to you because I actually know um, that you know what I'm suffering through right now. So it's through the pain of loss of shared loss that we were able to sympathize with others like who? Well, like Christ sympathizes with us, we read in Hebrews 4. Then we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As Jesus suffered, we suffer. If it wasn't strange for Jesus to suffer, it's not strange for us to suffer. Jesus said, the world hates me, they're going to hate you. Expect a one-to-one correlation with who I am and what I experienced with the things that you are going to experience as somebody who is becoming like me. Expect it. And expect to see some measure of glory and increased joy in it because you know what? You're not going to fall back into yourself. It's going to allow you to share and to carry another's burdens. Why do we know this is true? Because he helps us when we're crushed. Why? Because he was crushed for our iniquities. He helps us in our sorrows because he was a man of sorrows. He helps us when we weep because he wept over the loss of his friend Lazarus who died. That's why. He comforts our wounds because by his wounds we find healing for our souls. That's why we have something to offer even in our loss. Even as we're waiting in hope and hopelessness. Even as we're pressing on in frailty and fragility and weakness. Even as we're becoming something so slow that it feels like nothing is actually happening. We know it's true because of these things. I'm making babies cry now. What a tragedy to lose God in our loss. Since God was gained for us through the loss of his son. God's intention through our loss is for us to value the greater thing by losing the lesser thing. Do we see the kindness of God in that? Because that is the kindness of God in our loss and through our disappointment. That the eyes of our heart will become open to a greater love for Christ that's greater than life itself. The psalmist says in in chapter 63, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And knowing his love is more known and more felt in our loss. So listen, God is nearer in our loss because he's nearer than our loss. But it takes losing something precious for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ to become a surpassing worth. What Paul is saying is that there's nothing more beautiful or real or comforting or rewarding or renewing than knowing and becoming like Christ who suffered the greatest loss imaginable to gain the greatest salvation available. Only through the cross of Christ do we see loss through a lens of hope. Because of God's steadfast love for you, his sons, for you, his daughters, grief now becomes the very road leading to glory. Because how else? How else? How else does one single word in this book make any sense? How else? 
It's an argument I'm posing to you right now. How else is Job able to say in chapter 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. How is he able to say this next line? Blessed be the name of the Lord. How else is he able to say that? I know, man, we have that song, Blessed be the name of the Lord, and it's all boppity and everything. But that's a dark song. Somebody needs to minor chord out that song. There's my soapbox for the day. But how else is Job able to say that? How else is Habakkuk or Habakkuk your choice? How else is he able to say, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the yields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, everything's wiped out. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy, he said, in the God of my salvation. How else is he able to say that? How else is Peter able to say in 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And he says this, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How else is Peter able to say these things? How else is, how else is Paul able to say in Acts 20, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. To do what, Paul? To hang out? To collect seashells in Florida? Like, what are you going to do? No. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What does he say in Philippians 3? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. How is Paul able to say that? How is Jesus able to say in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Take it away. Provide another way. And then turn around immediately and say, nevertheless, not what I want. Not my will, but yours be done. How is he able to say in Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? For what? To enter into his glory. Don't miss the word necessary there. And don't think that that doesn't apply to God's people whom he loves and whom he cares for. Listen, and we're going to finish. Without a suffering Christ, our loss, our loss loses the weight of glory that the Apostle Paul says is preparing us for an unseen but eternal future for those who love Christ. So I'm going to finish by reading a psalm from David. Psalm 31. This is what David says. A man who had experienced loss, who faced God, asking questions that many of us are too afraid to ask in his pain and in his loneliness, in his hopelessness and in his despair. This is what we see David responding to God to in his loss, and this will be how we end and pray this morning. He says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times 
are in your hand. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. He says, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. We can translate that into, God, I am losing everything that I am and have and know. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. And then David says, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Then he finishes by saying, be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So let's take courage as men and women and children who are experiencing loss, who will experience loss. Let's love the Lord as we wait in hope, as we pursue Christ and we press on in our waiting, knowing that we are becoming something in our pursuing that is allowing us to bear one another's burdens for the glory that now is unseen, but someday will be seen as we are face to face with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for being our hope. We thank you that as we take a microscope into the years of our life and we can see all the different things that have affected us and all the losses that have shaped us and formed us, we know, Lord, that we are becoming something in you. We have an identity now in you that is being shaped by your sovereign hand. And that whatever you ordain is right. And even though you slay us, even though you ruin us, even though you take from us, God, we still worship you and we still bless you because we know that we are being prepared for a glory unseen that you are even in your goodness giving us a taste of as we open your word and have a deeper understanding of the intentionality and the care that comes from your hand who is a perfect father in our lives. Lord, let that change us. Let us carry that with us this week. God, you are good. We thank you for this gracious reminder and this hope that is ever being established in our hearts today, we pray. In Christ's name and together we said, amen. Let's stand.